You're listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Well, please take your Bible and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And let me begin by saying that I had prepared a long message for today. Okay? I'm telling you. I was feverishly typing this week. While many of you were, rightly so, stuffing your faces full of stuffing, I was furiously chained to this text. I mean, this text has in some ways just overpowered me this week. And I found myself in a, in a weird, almost manic fit and fever. And I just kept pouring things onto the page. As I was doing so, I discovered that I had somehow overprepared myself into a corner. So yesterday afternoon, I had a decision to make. Should I push through, preach the four-point message that I had been working on, and hopefully finish sometime before the evening service? Or should I shift gears, have mercy on us all, and pull back? Number two, thank you, from one of our new members, no less. After all, it's Communion Sunday. We just experienced the right hand of fellowship, and it's Thanksgiving weekend. And let's be honest, much of our leftovers are going to spoil if we don't eat them today. So I hope no one minds this morning, but I have replaced today's ever-expanding message with a much shorter one. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. So today we're going to do something different. Today I want us to simply preview the next few verses and establish a framework for understanding what's ahead. This is a simple overview But I think it's necessary and I think it's important for us to orient our hearts and orient our minds to this text. For those of you who love filling in the blanks, don't worry. Next week our standard sermon sheets will be there. Okay, they will be back in our bulletins. But for now I think it's really important for us to just pause for a moment. Let our food digest and catch our breath as we turn our attention back to the things that really matter. Because that's what Philippians chapter 2 is all about. Chapter 1 is all about Paul and how he's doing under house arrest in Rome. Chapter 2 is all about Christ's church and how we should function as his church. I truly believe that the passage before us is a watershed passage for the life of this church. This is a pivotal, pivotal passage for where we go from here. I truly believe that, and I'm not saying that to be fanatical. I'm not saying it lightly or haphazardly either. I mean that. So over the next few weeks, we will unpack the first five verses of Philippians chapter 2. And I would encourage you, in as much as you are able to, please be here. Please be here every Sunday for as much as you can. I realize that the holidays are hectic. I realize that we all make plans. Typically, that Sunday, the week of Christmas, attendance spikes. And then the following Sunday, with New Year's, it plummets again. And all those weeks leading up to it, we all have family commitments. We all have travel plans. We have all these different things to juggle. Please, don't let your late night, Saturday night shopping prevent you from coming here on a Sunday morning. Not this month. Please, because the Spirit has so much to say in these five little verses. And the topic before us is critical 
It's critical to the health of our church. So please follow along as I read from Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Paul says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It has been said that there is nothing quite as dangerous as a church business meeting. And some of you have experienced that. In case you haven't, let me at least provide for you a few examples. One church had a particularly long meeting over whether or not they should put a lock on the dumpster. We don't, by the way. After much discussion, there was no resolution. Well, the next week, guess what happened? Somebody put a dead body in the dumpster. As you can imagine, the church immediately voted by supermajority to put a lock on the dumpster. And from that day forward, those who were pro-lock were always under suspicion. (laughs) Who put the body in the dumpster? Now, if any of you for fun put a body in the dumpster, (laughs) we're going to find out who you are, okay? But that's a true story. Another church called a special business meeting to vote on whether or not they should close the church doors for good. Attendance had been low, giving had not been high enough to really sustain the various ministries of the church, so they decided, okay, we have to have a meeting and we have to decide to close our doors. The time has come. Let's put this thing to rest. Well, ironically, due to a lack of interest, not enough members showed up to make a quorum. True story. Or in one case, it's particularly sad. A church was literally split in two over the color of the roof shingles. Half the congregation wanted the roof to be one color, and the other half of the congregation wanted the roof to be another color, and both felt very strongly about their choices. To resolve the issue, the church's leaders decided to pull a Solomon, and they said, well, let's just split the baby in half. We'll color one half of the roof one color, and the other half of the roof another color. True story, but it gets worse. Once the shingles were in place... The two groups sat under whatever side of the auditorium (laughs) happened to be their color. True story. It's funny but sad because that church's testimony reflects a serious lack of unity. Just as the heavens declare the glory of God, that church's roof declares their inability to agree and defer to one another in love. Disunity acts like a cancer in the body of Christ because it spreads and it it destroys the entire church from the inside out. Disunity is damaging, destructive, and deadly. It is the greatest threat to an otherwise healthy church. That is why Paul sees fit to warn the Philippians of this danger and encourage them to strive together in unity. 
The last time we were in Philippians, he gave them this command at the end of chapter 1. In verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm, get this, in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul has already commanded them to lock arms, to stand strong, to stand firm for the cause of Christ. Now, beginning in chapter 2, he's going to flesh that out with the why, what, and how for true spiritual unity. But before we move forward, I, I want to take a few minutes and remind you of the special place that, that this church had in Paul's heart. Paul loved the Philippians. He loved them so deeply. He begins this letter by addressing the congregation as well as the church's leadership. And that's unique for Paul. Typically, whenever you open up the New Testament and you look at one of his letters, he addresses the congregation. He addresses the saints. But this is the only letter of his in the entire New Testament where he addresses all of church leadership as well as the congregation. In verse 1, he addresses the saints, the shepherds, and the servants. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, that's the congregation, who are at Philippi with the overseers, that's the pastors, the elders, same term, interchangeable, one office within the New Testament. The overseer is a pastor, the pastor is an overseer, the elder is an overseer, the the overseer is an elder, it's all the same thing, okay? The pastors, the overseers, the shepherds, and the deacons, the servants, those who serve the church and do so much of the work of the ministry to help free up the elders so that they, in turn, can do what is required of them. He addresses all of them because he wants everyone serving in the church to know that what he is about to write is so warmly addressed to them. This goes out to all of them. In verse 3, he says, I am always thanking God for you. Every time, Every time I think of you, over and over again, in my prayers, it just, it fills my heart with joy. Paul loved this church in a very special way. I mean, Paul loved all the churches. He most certainly did. But this church had a special place in his heart. They were a healthy church, a strong church, a solid church. And they loved Paul with such a warm, affectionate love that he couldn't help himself but give himself for them, both emotionally and spiritually. Let's not forget that churches are people, not buildings. And just like people, Paul found some churches easier to love than others. Now, he loved them all, but not all of them were as easy to love as this one. He loved the Corinthians, but the Corinthians caused him a lot of grief. He loved the Galatians, But the Galatians, they knew how to make his blood boil. They knew how to wind him up. Paul loved all of the churches, but it was easy to love the Philippians. The Philippians were a good church. They filled his heart with gratitude every time he thought of them. And he shares several reasons for that all throughout this letter. Let me go ahead and share a few of them with you. In chapter 1, verse 7, we see that they were a courageous church. They were a courageous church. He says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all 
because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Get this, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. This church stood with Paul. They locked arms with Paul. They supported Paul, even while he was in prison. They had conviction to defend and confirm the gospel, even when it wasn't popular. This was a courageous church. This was a church with fortitude, with strength, that knew their convictions and held by them, lived by them. In verse 9, Paul says, they were a loving church. He says, and it is my prayer that your love, the love that you already have, may abound more and more, abound more and more. He doesn't say, I wish you were a loving people. No, he says, you already have a great love for one another. And my prayer is that that love of yours would superabound, that it would abound more and more, that it would overflow. It's clear that this was a loving church. Still in chapter 1, we see in verse 19 that they were a praying church. He says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He knew that they were not only praying for him, but he was confident. He was sure that God would hear their prayers and answer them. This was a praying church. In chapter 2, it becomes clear that this is an obedient church. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even much more in my absence. And then he goes on to tell them what to do. He says, here's what I want you to do, and I trust that you're going to do it. I have no question in my mind that you are going to obey, because that's what you are. You're an obedient church. You obey. You do what I tell you to do, whether I'm with you there or not. They were an obedient church. They were also a growing church, not numerically, but spiritually. They were maturing. Look at chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The Philippians had already attained sound doctrine to the point where Paul could tell them, even if you don't fully agree with everything I just said, God will surely show it to you after a while because you're on the right path. And I am certain that we are going to end at the same conclusion. Why? Because the Trinity is not divided. The mind of God is not divided. He, he is not in conflict with himself. He doesn't even change his mind. And if that is true spiritually for the God that we serve, that should be true spiritually for us in our fellowship with one another. He says, those who are mature will think this way in the way that I've just outlined. But even if you disagree with me, that's okay. Because someday you're going to come around. And I know the Spirit will bring you to that point. This was a maturing church. Paul couldn't write like that to everyone. But he could write that way to them. Knowing that they would receive it well. His church had a good foundation with mature, maturing believers. Paul had every confidence that they would outgrow those immaturities that they had. This was also a very thoughtful church very thoughtful church. Look at chapter 4, verse 10. He says, 
I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. In other words, you've always been a thoughtful church. You haven't always been able to express it, but I know that the thought was there. I know that you care about me. I know that you have concern for me. I know that your heart is right and that you carry this genuine concern for my well-being. But you haven't always been able to do something about it. You've lacked opportunity in the past, whether that's time, resources, whether it's whatever, whatever could possibly prevent someone from expressing the fullness of their heart. He says, I at least know where your heart is at and that you are a very thoughtful church. You care whether you had the opportunity to express it in the past or not. This was a thoughtful church. And then finally, we see that this is a giving church. It's a giving church. Look at chapter 4, starting in verse 14. He says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. It is no wonder that Paul's heart flooded over with love for the church in Philippi. Here was a courageous, loving, prayerful, obedient, growing, thoughtful, and giving church. Of all his church plants, the Philippian church was certainly one of his favorites, if not his favorite, because they carried the marks of a congregation who would warm the heart of any pastor. And so this letter is unique. It is also the only letter of Paul's where there are no doctrinal or moral issues to address. That's very interesting. The Corinthians had a young man sleeping with his stepmother, and no one had the moral fortitude to do anything about it, to even speak up and say, no, this isn't right. You shouldn't be doing that. They were also getting drunk at communion and stuffing their faces, not just at Thanksgiving, but at communion and neglecting the poor. So Paul had to address some serious moral issues in the church at Corinth. The Thessalonians, on the other hand, they were a wonderful church, honestly, one of the best. It's a toss-up. Whenever you look at the New Testament and wondering, okay, where, what is the best church? I mean, Ephesus was pretty great, but they had issues, doctrinal issues more than anything else. Thessalonica, they were an amazing church, a wonderful church. And it really is a toss-up, I think, between Thessalonica and Philippi. They're one of the best, but they had doctrinal issues as well that needed to be addressed. They thought that they had missed the rapture. They looked around and they saw the intense persecution that was happening there in Rome and they assumed that somehow they had wandered off into the great tribulation, that the day of the Lord had come and they were suffering now as a result. So Paul commends them for their love and their zeal and then he goes on to correct their doctrine. You don't find any of that in Philippians though. None of it. No moral or doctrinal correction of any kind. But you do find one warning, one very familiar and all too common threat 
here within this book. You discover the looming danger of disunity. Three out of four chapters here in Philippians speak directly towards the issue of church unity. And that one-off chapter, chapter three, concludes with him saying, join together, come together in imitating me. Let me be the example for you. I can say with confidence that every single letter that we find written by the Apostle Paul contains this chief concern for unity. We know that this was heavy on Paul's heart. We know that this was a crucial issue for the Apostle Paul because he mentions it in every single letter. Not one letter is devoid of a call or, or a response or an issue given regarding church unity. We see it in the last three chapters of Romans. In 1 Corinthians 1 and 10. In 2 Corinthians 13. In Galatians 5 and 6. Ephesians 4. Colossians 3. 1 Thessalonians 5. 2 Thessalonians 3. 1 Timothy 2 and 6. 2 Timothy 2. Titus 3, and the whole point of Philemon is to restore a relationship between two Christians. So church, guess what? You know what that means for us and for the preaching of this church moving forward? It means for as long as we preach through the New Testament, where are we going to find ourselves? We're going to find ourselves continually coming back to this theme of church unity. It's a major issue within the New Testament. Don't get me wrong, you might get a break. When we transition to the Old Testament, someday I would like to preach through Judges. So look forward to that, okay? And definitely, uh, definitely, I'll give you a warning. Maybe we'll flash something behind me whenever it's time to cover your children's ears, okay? But we will make our way through certain Old Testament books. And maybe then you might get a break from this theme of church unity, but not for long. And probably not even then. Because the Old Testament speaks so much to how God feels about dissension among brothers and how God feels about the unity of the Spirit. So until then, unity is still a major theme for the church. When Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11 about his anxiety for all the churches, I believe it is clear that unity is at the top of those lists of concerns that he has. Alexander Strauch, in his book, Biblical Eldership, has this to say. He says, God hates division and fighting among his people, yet fighting paralyzes and kills many local churches. It may be the single most distressing problem Christian leaders face, end quote. And friends, as your pastor, I can tell you that that is absolutely true. Nothing puts lines on my face faster than grumbling, complaining, Gossip, negative chatter, false humility, quick assumptions, lying, or slander within the body of Christ. Nothing ages me faster. I'm telling you, I've lost more sleep over those things than anything else in my time here. Whether it relates directly to myself, or another elder, or another member, it really doesn't matter. Because the threat of discord is deadly wherever you find it. And the justifications for it are never good enough. They're never good enough. Believe me, we can convince ourselves of so many things. We can say, I'm the victim. 
or I'm right. And you might be the victim, and you might be right, but that doesn't justify discord ever within the body of Christ. Trust me, as your pastor, I feel it. It bothers me. And the testimony of Scripture says it bothered Paul too. It bothered him. So on one hand, we shouldn't be surprised because Paul always carried around this concern for church unity. But on the other hand, it's shocking. It's shocking to see church unity brought up so often here in the book of Philippians because as we've already seen, this is an extremely healthy church. This is a good church. You might expect all kinds of divisions and disagreements and grumbling and complaining and all other kinds of a form of division. You might expect to find that in other churches, but not here, not Philippians. I mean, not a church that is courageous, full of love, prayerful, obedient, growing, thoughtful, and generous. So why in the world Would Paul keep bringing up this issue over and over again in this little Holy Spirit-inspired thank you note? Why? Well, personally, I don't believe that this was a prevalent problem in the church of Philippi. I don't believe that. We don't have any clear indication within the text that it was. We certainly have an indication there that grumbling and complaining had started. We see that in chapter 2, verse 14. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. The implication being that those things were starting to appear within the church in Philippi. Otherwise, what need would he have to even address that? We have a couple of ladies later on who are complaining, who are arguing against each other. And he says, I urge you in the Lord to, to have them agree, to put their differences aside, to come together, because church unity is that important. We have this call to unity here in chapter 2 of deferring to one another in love, exercising the humility of Christ himself. I believe it's here because the greatest threat to a healthy church is disunity. The greatest threat to a healthy church is disunity. Listen to what William Barclay had to say about this fact. I really like this quote. He says, one danger... The one danger which threatened the Philippian church was that of disunity. There is a sense in which that is the danger of every healthy church. It is when people are really in earnest, when their beliefs really matter to them, that they are apt to get up against each other. The greater their enthusiasm, the greater their danger that they may collide. It is against that danger Paul wishes to safeguard his friends. Church, Paul loved and appreciated First Baptist Church of Philippi. He loved them. And I wish that I could express and convey how much I love First Baptist Church of Arlington. But his greatest fear for them is my greatest fear for us. Philippi was a good church. Philippi was an excellent church. And we are not far behind them. This is a healthy church. This is a good church, full of courageous, loving, prayerful, obedient, growing, thoughtful, and generous born-again believers. And I am thankful for that. But like the Philippians, our greatest threat is disunity. That is our greatest threat. So beloved, let's thank God for kind and gentle warnings like this one before us today in Philippians 2. Because friends, we need them. 
These first five verses are perhaps the most concise, the most practical verses in the entire Bible on this topic of spiritual unity. Let me just give you a quick overview of where we're headed in the next several weeks. In verse 1, we will see the reasons for church unity. Why should we care about it? Why is it important? In verse 2, we'll see the results of church unity. What does it look like? At the beginning of verse 3, the rivals of church unity. What are the attitudes that fight against it? And then finishing it out from the last half of verse 3 to verse 5, we have the requirements of church unity. The requirements of church unity. After having established all of that, what are the attitudes that encourage and promote spiritual unity in the church? So that's where we're going. We're going to look at the reasons, the results, the rivals, and the requirements of church unity. Next week, we'll focus on the first verse and the first heading, the reasons for church unity. But for now, though, I just want to give you a few more considerations as we approach this text. First of all, spiritual unity does not overlook false doctrine. I think it's important for us to keep that in mind as we move forward in this series. Spiritual unity does not overlook false doctrine. There is an appropriate time to disagree and even break fellowship when it comes to primary doctrinal differences. When Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, he's not telling us to compromise truth or put on a mask and pretend everything is okay in the name of unity. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is here is what true unity looks like. Shoot for this. But he would never say getting along is more important than God's word. Getting along is far more important than what God has already said. He would never say that. So what exactly is Paul talking about? If we are to come together without compromising the clear teaching of Scripture, what are the areas of discord that he has in mind as he writes this? Where is his concern? Where is that anxiety rooted in? Like, where is it coming from? I really appreciate what John MacArthur has to say in his commentary on this passage. Listen to this, and I only share this with you because he says it so well, far better than I could put together this week. He writes, Paul's concern here is not about doctrine, ideas, or practices that are clearly unbiblical. It is about interpretations, standards, interests, preferences, and the like that are largely matters of personal choice. Such issues should never be allowed to foment controversy within the body of Christ. To insist on one's, one's own way in such things is sinful because it is senseless and that it divides believers. It reflects a prideful desire to promote one's personal views, style, or agenda. He goes on to say, believers must never, of course, compromise doctrines or principles that are clearly unbiblical or clearly biblical, but to humbly defer to one another on secondary issues is a mark of spiritual strength, not weakness. And he is spot on. He hits the nail on the head with that one. Spiritual unity does not overlook false doctrine, but it does defer, it submits, it concedes to the other person in love. The obvious question then becomes, what is the difference between a primary issue and a secondary one? Someone asked me that question this week. 
I get asked that question quite frequently. What hills are worth dying on? What hills are not worth dying on? The answer is rather simple. Just ask yourself this. Is this a gospel of salvation issue or not? That's a good place to start. Because that is of first and primary importance. Everything else, the timing of the rapture, is really important. But you can be wrong about that and still be saved. It's really important that we hold to our beliefs and our convictions and that those convictions are grounded in Scripture, grounded in the Word of God. But there are issues where we are not all right. Some of us are wrong, but we're still believers in Christ. We're still saved, right? So think in those terms. Because if you believe Jesus was just a good man and not the God-man, well, at that point, we have a problem. At that point, we need to really talk about this thing because we're not going to overlook that issue. We're not going to defer to one another. Truthfully, though, if we're honest, serious doctrinal disagreements are not the problem in this church, even in most churches. The problem that we see all across this nation and everywhere where we find a grouping of believers, the problems that we see are much, ma- much more a matter of, of desire than doctrine. They're matters of preference. So let's keep that in mind as we focus on these verses because there's only one hill worth dying on, folks, and that's the hill that contains this book, the hill of God's word. Everything else is just gravy. It's preference, and Paul has a lot to say about that. Here's another consideration as we approach this text. Spiritual unity is maintained not created. And it's important for us to understand that. That spiritual unity is maintained. It is not created. A lot of times you hear people talking about creating unity. They say things like, we need to do this or we need to do that activity. We need to have more potlucks. We need to have more picnics. We need to have more field trips. We need to do all of these other things in order to create more unity. Friend, it doesn't work like that. That's not how it works. Don't get me wrong. You can create good memories and warm feelings. And you should. And we should. And I have nothing against potlucks. We should pursue those things. We should cultivate those things within the body of Christ. But you can't create more spiritual unity. You can't. You can only maintain it. At least that's what the Bible says. You will never find a verse where Paul or any of the other apostles encourage a church to create more unity. It doesn't exist. You're not going to find that. Because spiritual unity is, guess what? Of the Spirit. It's not something we manufacture. It's not something we make. It's not something an environment or a church culture could ever create. All we can make are warm feelings, warm fuzzies, and good memories. But we cannot create more spiritual unity. That verse doesn't exist, encouraging us to do so. When you were brought into a right relationship with God, you were automatically brought into a right relationship with God's people. When God adopted you into his divine family, you didn't just receive a new father, you received a new community of brothers and sisters. Sure, you can create a sense of family, a sense of togetherness, a sense of oneness, 
But the reality of your spiritual relationship status with the body of believers is still there, whether you have the right attitude or not. Now, that's not to say that your attitude doesn't matter, because it certainly does. That's why Philippians 2 is here. Our attitude matters greatly, but it doesn't change the reality. The fact that we are still bound, we are still obligated to one another when it comes to spiritual unity. Our attitude reflects the conditions of our heart in light of our union with the Spirit and other believers, not the other way around. Over and over again, Paul tells the churches, you have been united. You have this unity. Now act like it. Maintain it. Hold on to it. But he never says you need to create more of it by having more potlucks. He does say, however, turn your attention to your heart. Evaluate your motives. Evaluate your attitude and your actions in light of your status, in light of the unity that you have been granted, that you have been given. And maintain what the Spirit has already done for you and what he has already done for other believers. That's a biblical way of looking at it. And that is a mature way that we are all called to think. And finally, one last consideration before we turn our hearts to the Lord's table this morning. We need to remember that spiritual unity is a big deal. It's a big deal. Why is discord, dissension, and disunity in the church so important for us to take seriously? Well, first of all, God hates it. God hates it. Turn with me back to the Old Testament, to the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs, chapter 6. It's right after that large book, Psalm. Proverbs, chapter 6. We tend to focus on the love of God. And that's appropriate because God is love. And we have become the objects of his love. However, that is not to say that God is unable to hate. And I hope you can understand the difference. Just because God is love doesn't mean that he can somehow fail to hate. He most certainly does. Passages such as Proverbs 6 remind us of that sobering reality. Look at verse 16. He says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. So this isn't a comprehensive list, but it's certainly complete in the sense that God totally hates these things. He hates them. What are these seven things? Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and get this, and one who sows discord among brothers. That final hatred of God one who sows discord among brothers, is an abomination to him. That's a Hebrew way of saying it sickens him. It sickens him to the core. And it should sicken us to the core when we turn around and disrespect God by doing the very thing we know he hates. When we justify dissension in the church, we commit at least two terrible sins against the Godhead. At least two. So often we, we look at people and we say, well, that's the victim and that's the victimizer, right? No, no. We're gonna unpack that more next week. 
But the fact of the matter is, when we create spiritual disunity within the church, our sin is ultimately against God. It is against the Godhead. It is not against myself, an elder, a Sunday school teacher, another member, a spiritual leader of any kind. That is not the person. They are not the victim in that sense. We are ultimately sinning against God. But we see at least two terrible sins against the Godhead when we do so. First of all, we actively choose to do what God hates. And then secondly, we passively refuse to do what Jesus desires. Two terrible sins. We choose to do what God hates. And we passively refuse to do what Jesus desires. Let's turn forward to John 17. John 17. We have already seen just briefly how much God hates disunity and discord among brothers. See what Jesus has to say about it here in John 17. John 17 contains that precious prayer that Jesus prayed the night before, or the night of his betrayal. Look at what he prays for his disciples in verse 11. He says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. He prays specifically for the disciples' unity in verse 11. Now look at his heart as it burst open there, starting in verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Friends, that's us. Those who believe in Christ because of their word, their testimony, this scripture, that's us, every believer. So there's no getting around this. What is Jesus' prayer to the Father regarding us? He says that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Isn't it clear? What is Jesus' passion for the church? It's spiritual unity, total togetherness, perfect oneness. He states it over and over and over again in just these few verses alone. In fact, spiritual unity is so important to our Savior. He says that it goes on to display the plan of salvation, Christ's love for the church and the Father's love for him to the rest of the world. It's that important. Church, do you realize that our message is more than just a message? It is a declaration of grace filled with the power of God by the love of God, proven true in the church of God. When we choose our preferences, our desires over Jesus' desire for his church, is it any wonder that things don't go well for us? Should we be surprised by that? When things go from good to a little bit worse to just flat out bad? No, whether we realize what we are actually doing or not, we have actively chosen to do what God hates, 
and passively refuse to do what Christ desires. That is why spiritual unity is so important. And that is why Paul orders this section the way that he does. He starts with the reasons for church unity, followed with the results, the rivals, and the requirements of church unity. This is a hard word. It's a hard word for me, so I know it's a hard word for you too. Because we all love our preferences. If we didn't, we wouldn't have them, right? We all have our preferences for a reason. They're ours. We own them. We have our loves. We have our hates. We have our desires. We have our do's and don'ts. We have the things that we want. Friends, I know that I'm biased, but I love this church. Like the Philippians, this is a good church. As I've gotten to know so many of you over the last few years, I know that this is a courageous, loving, praying, obedient, growing, thoughtful, and generous church. I know that, and I believe that in my heart. But the greatest threat to this healthy church is disunity. It's disunity. So we all need this word. Every last one of us. And if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, nope, I got this one, everything else, okay, but I'm not, I'm not a dissenter, I'm not a problem maker, I'm a peacemaker, I'm not a troublemaker, so I don't need this, I can just check out. Friends, you're wrong. You're wrong. Because we all need this. This is a word for a healthy church. This is a threat. This is something that looms in the shadows for all of us. So we need to take this seriously. And we need to evaluate. We need to question. We need to come before God's word humbly. And we need to check our own hearts and our own attitude and ask ourselves, are we living in light of the spiritual unity that we have been given? Are we? Are we maintaining the unity of the spirit with the bond of peace? It's a good question for all of us to ask. And I would encourage you, please, Pray through this passage. Meditate on this passage. We are going to live in this passage for the next month. But please, don't let that, don't, don't just think to yourself, well, we're going to be reading this. Pastor Hans is going to take his time, and we're going to, we're, I'm going to probably have it memorized by the time he's done, so I don't even need to look at it again. Please don't do that. Live in this passage. Pray through this passage. Humbly submit to this passage. Let's keep these things in mind, though, regarding spiritual unity as we move forward. And we see what the Lord has for us in the years and weeks ahead.